Well, good morning again. I thought we'd start this morning with the easy stuff. (laughs) Like, what is the most important question that you can ask in life? And just think about that for a second. What's the most important question that we can ask? Maybe, what's the meaning of life? I suppose that makes sense. What was it, 42 in the Hitchhiker's Guide? Something like that, 42. What's the meaning of life? I suppose that's one. Um, Who am I? Who am I? Who are you? That's another one. Question of meaning, question of identity, right? These are all great questions. In fact, uh, Francis of Assisi is said to have stayed up all night praying time after time. Who am I? Who are you, Lord? Who am I? Who are you, Lord? Who am I? Trying to get to that answer of identity, meaning. But actually, I think that there is a couple of questions that we need to ask first before we can ask questions of meaning and questions of identity. And I think the first one is, why am I here? That's a question of purpose. Why am I here breathing? Why am I here on this planet? What, what is my purpose as a human being? Why am I here? And the second is, what is the goal of my life? What is that purpose supposed to lead to? Is there an end result? Is there something that is a goal that I should be shooting for? How are we going to answer these questions? It seems that when you really take a look at Jesus' teaching, when you take a look at what he was about, when you take a look at the the whole Hebrew milieu that he came from, the context, the worldview of his life, that the answer is pretty clear. We are here to learn how to connect. We are here for the purpose of connection, to realize and to practice oneness, and I suppose just love, but love understood as that identification with the beloved, that connection with the beloved that changes everything. Whatever behavior we call loving flows out of that feeling of connection, of oneness. And whatever feelings, affection, sentimentality that we call love flows out of those behaviors. But it starts with the connection. Why am I here? I'm here to learn to connect. And what is the goal of my life? Jesus answers that one for us, too. It's freedom. It's liberation. Liberation from what? Liberation from the fear that blocks us from being able to connect. Everything ties together. Everything runs through. Jesus said at John 8, verse 31, so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. One of the more famous verses in the whole New Testament, right? The truth will make you free. How many times have you heard that one? We read this last week, but just to review, that word, word there, if you continue in my word, means so much more than just our English word, word. In Greek, it's logos. In Aramaic, it's melta. But the reason, or the, the whole sense of this word is so much more expansive. It can mean a full story. It can mean a sentence. But ultimately, 
especially in John 1, it means the underlying reason. Everything that stands beneath the universe, everything that undergirds the universe was understood as logos. The underlying reason, the underlying motive. Actually, you couldn't, without too much stretch, say it's the worldview of a person. To continue in Jesus' worldview, to continue in Jesus' underlying motive is always connection. Everything Jesus is about is connection, it's unity, it's love. Read John 17 again. Total red chapter. Everything is about unity. Everything is about connection. And he says, if we continue in this motive, if we continue in this direction of connection, the truth that we find, if we live for connection, is that all is connected, that all is really one thing. There is one God that infuses all of this, and when it resolves back down from its present diversity, it's going to be one thing. That's the truth that we find. And if everyone has a seat at the table, if everyone is connected and unified and one family, then what we realize is we're not in competition with each other. Everyone has everything that is. We are now free and we are now liberated to be able to love, to let our resources flow through us. We won't have the fear anymore when we realize everyone has a seat at the table. And if you think about it, this really is St. Francis, Francis of Assisi's way. If you know anything about his life, he had the vision, he had the connection, the reality, and the realization of this unity. And then he gave away all his material possessions. He cut himself off from his very wealthy family, renounced everything, and entered into a life of poverty that freed him from all of those possessions and all of the worries that went on with it. Of course, it opened up a whole new bag of worms, but his life of poverty, his life of connection, is what led him to be able to ask the question of identity and meaning. Who am I? Who are you, Lord? Over and over and over again. But notice the, the order in which he moved. It's the same order in which Jesus moves. From the direction of connection, from a bedrock and practical way of living life, into a deeper understanding. You have to be in motion first. Had to get in motion. Understanding why we're here, the goal of life, the purpose, leads to meaning and identity. So, if that's the case, if we've got it all mapped out, if we really know what the, the, the shape of the journey is, why is it still so hard? Why is this way of letting go so hard? Once we know, once we understand. Last week we talked about the triune brain, the way the brain is, is set up, as far as neuroscientists understand it now. That we have that reptilian brain, that lizard brain, you know, that is dealing with all of the basic fight, flight, food, reproduction. It, it manages our digestive tract and our breathing and our heart rate. All those things that are completely unconscious. We don't have any idea what's going on down there. It just does it and works on its own. And then surrounding that is the limbic system, which is the seat of all of our emotions. And that is also unconscious. It's also the seat of our memories. That also is unconscious. We don't have any control over that. We don't know anything about that. 
And then above that is the neocortex, which is the seat of our consciousness, but it can't reach. The limbic system and the lizard brain are pre-programmed with the, the, all the programs for survival. It's hardwired to all of our organs and our adrenal glands and everything, all for the purpose of survival. The defense systems are unconscious. They're inaccessible directly by our minds. But you know what? They're really driving the bus, aren't they? Our emotions drive the bus. That fight or flight, all of that drives the bus. And if we're not aware of what's going on, we have no idea why we do the things we do, why we feel the things that we feel. I want to give you three random examples of these kinds of compulsions. When I was a kid, remember when you could still do fireworks? Anybody remember fireworks? You could buy them at the little stands that popped up on the corners, and you could burn them in your street. Those days are gone, aren't they? But I remember one time, uh, the whole neighborhood out for 4th for fi- um, of July, and every family with their fireworks, and we had our family, and, and uh, people gathered around. And my little sister, who's two years younger than me, I don't know how old she would have been at that point, maybe four or so, and someone gave her a sparkler. Remember sparklers? A little wire thing, and they would burn down and sparkle. And so she had a sparkler, and she was so entranced by this thing. But all of a sudden, we realized she was holding it by the part that was going to burn. And so she's got it in her hand, and she was choked up too high on this. And so everybody's screaming at her, drop it, drop it, drop it. And she's holding on for dear life. She's not going to drop that thing. That's her sparkler. Mm. Finally, someone came up and just knocked it out of her hands, and she just wailed and screamed because they took away her sparkler. You know? It's so interesting when you think about it because it is so hard for us to let go of our self-destructive compulsions, our self-destructive desires, our self-destructive drives. Once we got our eyes fixed on something, once the bit is between the teeth, God, you got to move heaven and earth to get us to let go, even when we know it's destructive. Back in the 13th century, you know, between England and France. Always, always a war between England and France, it seems. And uh, one would get the upper hand, and the other would get the upper hand. You had this arms race going on. Finally, the English came up with a longbow. I don't know if you ever heard of the longbow. This, this bow was as tall as the archer was, over six feet tall. If, you know the thing about draw pressure? This had over 140 pounds, sometimes up to 160 pounds of draw pressure. That's Imagine trying to pull back on a drawstring. It's 160 pounds. Actually, you couldn't do it. The way that you taught a longbowman is you had to start when they were kids with smaller bows, and they had to work up to it as they grew, getting stronger and stronger with bigger and bigger bows. And you actually didn't draw the string. You held the string solid, and you leaned your whole body into the bow to actually get it to draw. And this thing was amazing in terms of the poundage and the, and the force and the distance that it could fly. It made knights in armor irrelevant, right? Because it was just armor-piercing. It had so much force. But did they give up on armor? Did they change their battle tactics? No. What did they do? They made thicker armor and then thicker armor and then thicker armor to the point that you needed a crane to get the knight up onto the horse poor horse. And if he fell down, forget it. He's like a turtle on his back, right? Finally, they had to realize armor doesn't work anymore, but it took them forever to do that. And a lot of battles were lost and a lot of knights were killed, right? Because 
it is so hard for us to let go of our past security. Hard for us to let go of those compulsive desires. It's also hard to let go of what we had in the past that was secure, even when it's not proving to be secure anymore. We hold on. We hold on. I remember seeing the movie where... um, I can't remember if it was Journey to the Center of the Earth or something. Anyway, they're, they're going down this, this rope, and all of a sudden this guy falls, and he's hanging on for dear life to the rope, and, and you just see him in close-up holding onto the rope, and he's sweating bullets, and he just, he's trying to get me up, get me up, and they're saying, let go of the rope, let go of the rope. He says, are you crazy? I can't let go of the rope. Finally, finally, he lets go of the rope, and he falls about 18 inches. <laughs> he was already down. It is so hard for us to face the unknown. What we don't know is beneath us scares the heck out of us. It's hard to let go of our compulsive desires. It's hard to let go of the securities of the past. And it's hard to face the unknown. Why? Because our limbic system and our lizard brain is already pre-programmed to face threats in a certain way. And just because the circumstances have changed and time has moved on, it doesn't matter because those things are down there. Think of it like a captain of a ship who is running full speed into an iceberg and he is screaming down the radio to the engine room to stop the engines, turning the wheel, stop the engines, stop the engines, but the line is cut. Now the sailors down in the engine room They can't see a thing. They have no consciousness of what's going on up there. They're just happy as clams doing what they were told to do at the last order. They don't know. We cannot access directly what's down there in our brains because the lines are cut. They are unconscious. We can't go there. By definition, they are unaware of changing times in our lives, unaware of changing circumstances. They are frozen in that place, and our conscious thought, our willpower can't reach them, can't get down to them. And that's why our willpower doesn't work, to change these deeply rooted things. When we talk about Francis's way, when we talk about Jesus' way of moving in new directions, that's why they start with the activity first, with the motion first, and not just ideas because the ideas can't get down to where we really live. The ideas can't really reprogram us. Only action can do that. Repeated action in a new direction does rewire those neural synapses, does rewire the brain in a way that thinking can't, because thinking can't get down there. I wanted to read you an email that I got. Before I do that, Do you know what the top fears are that we talked about? You know, these fears that we can't... I just thought this was interesting. You know what the number one fear is that we have that's irrational and it's just down there in the limbic system and the lizard brain? is the fear of public speaking. That's number one. 74% of respondents said public speaking is their number one fear. You know what the next one is? Fear of death. (laughs) That was at 68%. Jay Leno had a great line for this. He said, I guess we'd rather be in the casket than delivering the eulogy. I thought that was pretty good. Fear of spiders is number three. Fear of darkness, fear of heights, fear of people or social situations. Fear of flying is number seven. Fear of confined spaces. 
claustrophobia, eight, fear of open spaces, agoraphobia, number nine, and fear of thunder and lightning. You know they have names for all this? Fear of thunder and lightning is brontophobia. Have you ever heard that one before? I'm sure you heard of agoraphobia and claustrophobia. Fear of flying, aerophobia. It's just interesting. And then down here in the honorable mentions, fear of snakes, fear of dogs, fear of injections. Oh, that's relevant right now, isn't it? Fear of germs and dirt, that's also relevant right now. Fear of intimacy, fear of failure, fear of rejection, fear of commitment. All of these fears got programmed, usually with a traumatic event earlier in our life. And they're no longer rational. There's no longer a clear and present danger in front of us, but it doesn't matter. We feel the fear whether the danger is present or not. And then no amount of willpower, thought power, makes any difference at all. Spiritual and pleasure, uh, survival and pleasure drives are pre-programmed and they're hardwired and they're unconscious. And by definition, we're unaware of them. And so this email that I got was great, and I just love this. And it, it's, uh, I kind of sanitized it, and you'll never know who sent it. But he writes, I kind of went dark a few months ago as I've struggled with this. And then in parentheses, he says, this meaning whatever it was I was struggling with. I just love that. He's struggling with whatever it was he was struggling with because he's not even sure what he was struggling with. He just knew he was struggling. Does that ring any bells for any of us? I mean, that is so lizard brain, isn't it? We know we're struggling. We feel the tension, but we don't know what it is. We feel the emotion. We don't really know what it is. I've struggled with this, whatever it was I was struggling with. I woke up this morning, and it was clear as a bell. So he wakes up that he hasn't been taking God seriously. He put that all in bold. So if you're asking what that means, this morning, I didn't know for certain. Then I asked the Bible, and wham, what did Jesus learn through his suffering? What do any of us learn from our suffering? Is it to be obedient? It is to be obedient. Then bang, I realized I was trying, willing, egoing to make meaning, to make something of me by willpower, trying to make meaning, make something of himself. Immediately after the cancer death experience and for months afterwards, I was humbled, at least closer to obedient, and grateful. But slowly, my egoic mind has wanted, read, willed, to get in there and make something of the experience rather than just learn and grow from it. I have wept today, not of sadness, but of feeling touched. I'm more aware than ever of a persistent mind that will even interfere with prayer. I weep because I feel swept away again by God's will, and I pray that I may continue to follow him. I just realized that I am in the midst of step one of AA. I have accepted that I am helpless over the initiatives of the will and the egoic mind. My mind is not going to control my mind. And that I am totally dependent upon God, the Holy Spirit, and my better self. I'm going to get an empty bottle and label it will slash ego. Now, here's where the ritual comes in. This is beautiful. I'm going to get an empty bottle and label it will slash ego and put it on the top shelf of our pantry. And when I enter there, just before I get my coffee, I'm going to look at it and say to myself and to God, not today. (laughs) I love that. 
Remember we were talking about rituals last week? These are the little things that make such a difference. Because remember, your lizard brain doesn't know the difference between a real act and a symbolic act. And so that jar, and not today, is as good as a real act to the lizard brain. When we are trying to access all of that stuff down there in the unconscious, the only way we can do it is ritually, ceremonially, and in real life, but not by thinking about it. It has to be an action, something that we really do. He writes, I told you once how I valued my mind, and I still do. It's a wonderful instrument, but lordy, it really wants to be the man. I yearn for obedience, for acceptance of God's will and direction, and for the peace that comes from following him. This is classic. This is perfect. It's just like what we read last week, Paul at Romans 7, right? The things that I hate, those are the things I do. The things I want to do, I don't do those things. What a wretched man I am. You know, that whole rail that he has there, that rant that he goes through. It's the same idea here. This friend of mine realized that he had the cart before the horse. He was trying to assign meaning to life. He was trying to assign identity to himself before he just followed Jesus' way of connection leading to freedom. He's trying to figure it out rather than live it out. And he was still feeling that things weren't right for a reason he couldn't quite put his finger on until that morning when all of a sudden there it was, bright and shiny, right in front of his face. And the truth is, we're not only fighting the unconscious, but we're also fighting our conscious mind as well. The egoic mind that was within our conscious, we're fighting that just as much as we're fighting the unconscious. The egoic mind is always judging. It's always assigning meaning. It's always creating edges and putting things into boxes, assigning identity before it's become free of the lizard brain and the limbic brain and the fear and the compulsions that drive us. The egoic mind wants to take control when it has no power there. So we have to fight that too. It's quite a battle that we're in. You want to know why Jesus' way is so difficult. You want to know why recovery is so difficult. Working through the steps, it's because of this. You can't think your way through it. We want to. We want it to be all neat and tidy and clean, and we can just put it on a spreadsheet, and there it is on the fridge. But it doesn't work that way. We've got to get down into the grotiest parts of our life and live through these things. Anything else cannot work. It's why Jesus starts with a way of living life into connection, into truth, and into freedom before talking about meaning, before talking about identity. When he comes out of the wilderness after doing this kind of work that we're talking about, living these things, then he comes out and can say, I and the Father are one. Then he can talk about identity. But he does it in that order. Because the truth can only be seen in motion. Only in the motion of truth can we find the freedom of connection and know that we know and prove to ourselves that we really do have that seat at the table, that we really can let down the fear and the compulsions that see everything in competition. A zero-sum game. I need to gain at someone else's expense when the truth of the matter is 
everything is showered upon everyone at all times. We're all God's best friends. We have to prove to this unconscious brain through action that the old defenses are no longer necessary. And it's okay to let our defenses down, to let go of the compulsions in the truth that we find and the freedom of God's connection and love. That only happens in action. can't happen any other way. Let's take a look at the three steps because I think this may help us to get a clearer idea of what's going on here. Step one, for those of you who are in the program, you know these by heart. We had admitted that we were powerless over blank. What is it that you're powerless over? Is it alcohol? Is it drugs? Is it some addiction of some kind, process addiction? Whatever it is that's got you, whatever it is that you cling to, whatever it is that is the the compulsions of your desires, the remembrance of what your security is, the fear of the unknown, that's what you're powerless over. We admitted that we were powerless over this in our lives and that our lives had become unmanageable. Then step two, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And then the third step, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. I suppose if you were going to put this on a bumper sticker, and some have, step one is, I can't. Step two, God can. Step three, let him. Right? Which is perfectly true and perfectly unhelpful at the same time. Because you can't think your way through this. Right? It's totally true, totally unhelpful, unless it's acted out as mere concepts. Even the steps, however they are worded, can't work for us. But acted out over time in our daily lives, it's a becoming into, a serial becoming into a state of surrender, a state of connection, a state of letting go. It's a serial surrender. We can't surrender all at once, not really, not what surrender really means. It's the hardest thing for us to do. To give up that last vestige of the ego's self-image of itself, the illusion of power, you know, no one gives up power voluntarily. You can't do it. The only thing you can do is see the truth. You don't have any power. That you can do. You can finally break through the illusion and see that. But if you think you've got power, you don't give that up. The lizard brain won't let you. It's the action that you take that slowly breaks down the illusion until there's nothing left there to defend. And then things can actually change. No one gives up power voluntarily. And let's be honest. We admire those who fight to their last breath, don't we? We admire those who hang on. There's something in us that admires Milton Satan, who says it's better, better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven, right? Better to rule in hell than serve in heaven. That kind of, of stick-to-itiveness, that kind of, of, of resistance, is something that we admire. And yet it is so self-destructive. It's the sparkler that we're holding from the Bernie part, right? Without submission, there is nothing for us. And giving up is not enough. Giving up is just the end of resistance. 
It can be strategic. A bankruptcy is strategic, right? It looks like you're giving up the business, but you're really not if you're restructuring. You take the bankruptcy so that you can restructure and you can live to fight another day. You give up the, the main resistance in a war, but you've got this underground resistance, like the French resistance during World War II, still fighting the fight over here. It's very different. There was a story that my uh, initial pastor said years ago about the, what happened around his dinner table. He had one daughter who was always standing up at dinner, and they kept telling her, sit down, sit down, sit down. Finally, they forced her to sit down, and she glared across the table, and she said, I may be sitting down on the outside, but on the inside, I'm standing up. End of resistance. But there's no submission there. I want to make that distinction between giving up and surrender. Surrender, true surrender, is the beginning of submission. And submission is a bad word for us. It's a four-letter word. We talked about that a while back, the S word, right? No one wants to be in submission. Women have felt like they've been in submission for generations. They don't want to be in submission. You don't. But if we understand submission correctly... Submission is not just yielding to a greater power in the way we're going to use it here. Submission is actually caring more about the well-being of another than you do about your own. So you subsume your own will for the benefit of somebody else. That kind of submission is tied to vulnerability. It's tied to connection. It's tied to love. And if it's mutual, it's kingdom. But somebody has to start practicing it first. Without this submission, there's always going to be another bottom and another bottom and another bottom that we hit personally because we're not connected. You cannot really connect with another person. You can't have relationship that is intimate with another person without this submission that we're talking about. And you will keep hitting bottom after bottom until there is nothing left to defend. To learn submission is one of the most important things that we can do. I remember when, the, I can still remember the moment that I finally learned how to submit to authority that I didn't respect. Isn't that the case? It's the hardest thing in the world to submit to authority you don't respect. I was in a worship team, and the worship leader was a great musician, but not much of a motivator and not much of an administrator, and I was always butting heads with him because I had a better way. And it raised and raised and raised in, in intensity until finally I just quit the team and walked away. And I realized almost immediately that I had made a mistake. I just felt it. And so I kind of came back on my hands and knees and made my apologies and asked if I could be let back on the team. And sort of between gritted teeth, he said, okay. <laughs> but from that moment on, I was a soldier. I was a good soldier. I learned that I had to respect the authority for the good of the group. It was a moment where something clicked over in me. And ever since then, I've been able more and more to be able to do that in situations. To let my will be subsumed for the good of the group, the others that are in my blast radius. And that made all the difference. It's not just yielding. It's more than that. And finding the identity in the connection with others and with God, that can't happen without submission first without us really allowing ourselves to be open and vulnerable to the other and then find out that that is where our identity really lies, that identity in self as this free-floating thing 
doesn't exist. It's just a thought in my head that identity is only acted out in real time, in submission, in connection, in relationship, in love with others. You don't get this kind of insight sitting on your couch thinking. You get it in the streets of your life, getting dirty, getting messy, all those things that happen. The first three steps of AA are wonderful approximations of this serial surrender that Jesus is leading us to. A series of events, a series of realizations that happen along the way when we are choosing in the direction of connection. Step one and two prepare us, right? Step one helps us to recognize the truth that any power that we think we have is only illusion. It doesn't exist. We can't give up power that we think we have. But step one is that understanding, admitting that we have no power. We are powerless. It is telling us, the first step is telling us who we are not. We are not self-sufficient. We are not autonomous. We are not powerful as human beings. Our relationship that we understand in humility is very different than that. That's the I can't part. Step two is to recognize God, God's actual nature and his willingness to help and bring our lives back into focus, back into sanity, to help, to heal. That Knowing that we know as we move into God's presence, as we understand what that means to be in God's presence, and we realize who God is. Step one, who we are not. Step two, who God is. That's the God can part. That prepares us for step three, to become one with God's purpose, to become one with God's connection, to learn who we are in God. Not who we imagine ourselves to be in our egoic minds, but who we actually find ourselves to be in the relationships human relationships with God at the core, in the center. That's the let him part. It's not just to somehow make this decision in your mind, you know, to release everything to God, you know, just let go and let God, let go and let God. What does that even mean? If it's just mental, it means absolutely nothing. But when you're stepping out in that vulnerability, when you're stepping out into relationship, letting people see you as you are, and trusting that you're not going to get your heart stomped on or your head bitten off, that's letting go. You're risking something real, something that's important to you. And you're finding out whether the person, the group that you're with, the God that you're with, will value that thing as much as you do and return it to you intact. Nothing can replace that experience of doing such a thing. Each step that is acted on makes the next step possible. That's why they're in the order they are. That's why Jesus teaches in the order that he teaches, why the shape of his journey looks the way that it does, why he didn't give us a highfalutin theology and doctrine and philosophy. He just gave us practical steps that would take us into a life that would be transformative. Each step acted on makes the next step possible. It helps us to step 
outside the powerlessness of self to that power that is greater than ourselves, the community around us, to God in the community around us. I always remember Pastor Frank telling me something profound. He said, if you're in early recovery and your higher power is just God, unseen God, spirit God, you're not going to make it. How does that spirit, how does that unseen concept in your head hold you accountable? How does it create the rails on your path that'll keep you in enough center that you can actually get where you need to go before losing yourself? It's the community around you. It's the people that you choose to live in submission to that are your higher power, infused by God's spirit, of course, prayerfully infused, but it has to be physical, it has to be real. This is what we're up against. Once we have leaned into this power greater than ourselves, the community and God, then it comes back to the purpose. Why are we here? Connection. It's all about connection. Connection to this collective power that God has given all of us frees us to be able to really love, to let our will be subsumed in relationship. And then it brings us back to forgiveness as a total key to this whole thing. For us to connect as human beings is to be vulnerable, is to be undefended. There's no other way to do this. You've got to let your shields down if you want to let another, another person in. That's just life, right? But to be vulnerable, to be undefended, is to be hurt, is to be heartbroken. There is no way that the things you love aren't going to hurt you in the rough and tumble of life and relationship. It's just a given. You will get hurt. Not if when you will get hurt if you allow yourself to be vulnerable and undefended, which makes us then want to defend ourselves again, right? You don't want to feel that again. You don't want to feel that heartbreak again. But to follow Jesus is to remain vulnerable until you see the truth that makes us free. What truth is that? That the most powerful position in the universe is vulnerability. That's the power position. Because only in vulnerability, only in connection, only with that sense of oneness that vulnerability and openness will give you, can we attain our goal, which is the freedom to forgive. Jesus says at Luke 23, hanging on the cross, take a look, starting at verse 33. I'm sorry, this is Matthew 10. Anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. To lose ourselves in this vulnerability, in this connection, Jesus takes to the cross at the most ultimate place. At Luke 23, when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And then Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This is the whole point of the cross. We've made it into this mechanistic system, but the whole point of the cross is that Jesus' whole life was lived in vulnerability, in undefended openness, in connection with everyone that he met. And he ends his life in that same vulnerability, even in extremis, even hanging on the cross, facing the most horrendous attitude 
toward his death, he remains undefended. He remains open, connected. He remains compassionate. He chooses connection. Father, forgive them. He finds oneness with even those who are killing him. And in Aramaic, there's a connection between forgiveness and freedom that can help really, I think, lock this in and bring us home. I want to read a little excerpt, this time from my own book, The Fifth Way. And just listen to this for a second and see if this locks it together. First time that I realized this in Aramaic, it just kind of blew my mind. In what sense, then, are we free in kingdom? If kingdom is defined by complete and perfect unity and oneness of relationship, must it not also be defined by limited freedom as well? Yeshua said at John 8.32, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. What sort of truth is it that will make us free? And from what? And how is this truth and freedom related to our sense of kingdom? The clues are right in the language itself. Starting with the second half of the equation first, the set free part, there are two closely related Hebrew Aramaic terms that we need to consider. And the first is subkana, an Aramaic word. Subkana is the Aramaic word that is translated make you free here in John 8 and is also the same word translated as release and set free in John 4.18 as Yeshua stands in the synagogue at Nazareth reading from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and he has sent me to proclaim release, subkana, to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free, subkana, those who are oppressed. Subkana means to set free, to release, to liberate, and to deliver. But there's another connection here. When Yeshua says at Luke 23 from the cross, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they are doing. The word he uses for forgive is sevak, which now brings us full circle. Sevak itself is a form of the word with which we started, subkana, sharing the same roots. When the word used for made free in John 8, release or liberation of the captives in Luke 4, also means forgiveness in Luke 23, a connection is being made that we must not miss. At their roots, sevak and subkana mean to loosen, to let go, to leave, to allow, to return something to its original state. From those meanings, it becomes clear how the concepts of release, liberation, and forgiveness all flow from that same word. When something or someone has become damaged, imprisoned, injured, or hurt, heartbroken, when any ill has befallen, forgiveness is letting it go, allowing it the freedom to return to its original state. If we follow Jesus' way, this way of serial surrender, we lose ourselves in connection, lose ourselves in vulnerability, lose ourselves in a submitted state. And when we get hurt, when we get heartbroken, when we lose ourselves all over again in the reconnection of forgiveness, we are, by definition, liberated. We are made free. The forgiveness is the freedom to love, to connect again. 
The liberation and the freedom that is forgiveness then defines us. It gives us the meaning. It gives us the identity flowing from our purpose, always moving, always choosing in the direction of connection. There is no other way than this. This is what Jesus said. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes through the Father but through me, through this way, this serial surrender, this release, this letting go, this forgiveness, this identity that comes from the liberation of forgiveness. There is no other way to the Father who is all those things. When we practice them, we move in that direction and we find the serial surrender that allows us the vulnerability to be connected at every level. Let's pray. Father, this is tough stuff. You've asked us to go against all the programming that you put into us. That can seem a bit unfair, but it is part of the shape of our journey. It is the necessity of the shape of our journey. Help us to follow you. Help us to understand what that really means, that we do need to take steps, that we do need to risk things, that our experiences, even of heartbreak, are taking us closer to you every time we return to our vulnerability, return to our surrender, to return to our submission to you and to each other. Help us to cherish our relationships for everything that they really represent in our lives. They are our reason and purpose, our underlying motive for being here. And in them, we will find the goal. We will find you. Help us to treat our relationships with the value that they have. And help us to read our scriptures in ways that reinforce exactly what you're showing us here. To see in them what we need every single day. So that when we ask our scriptures what it is, the next step that we need to take, it'll be clear to us. Help us to always choose the direction of connection. And of course, Father, thank you for loving us and never letting us go and reminding us that we can only love because you loved us first. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen? All right. Let's all stand.